it is a long play to bring new technologies in this type of space to market readiness. What you really need actually generally is consistency from market support. And that needs policy intervention in some shape or another to help level that playing field. This is The Interchange Recharged. I'm David Van Miller. On the 28th of July, 2021, in the waters off the northernmost tip of Scotland, a 74-meter underwater turbine started turning its 10-meter blades. Moved by the powerful tides that churned between the island of Ede to the east and the islands of Muckle Greenholm to the southwest, the turbine sent electricity to a 2-megawatt offshore unit and then onwards to the local electricity network. And actually, we can borrow some of the philosophies of pitch control and things like that uh, over from the wind sector. And it's all quite conventional logic that we're using. The O2 tidal turbine is a project from Scottish marine power company Orbital and represents the culmination of 15 years of project development. Nearly two years later, on the 20th of March, 2023, in the waters of the Edel estuary in Brittany, France, another steel turbine slipped silently into the water. Backed by the EU's 5 million euro Element Marine Renewables Technology Development Scheme, the 50 kilowatt turbine was the first step on the journey to a whole new market. In 2011, France was set to pioneer the tidal power sector with its flagship Pampol Brehat Array, but that was decommissioned in 2018. The EU strategy on offshore renewable energy laid out the plan to have one gigawatt of ocean energy projects operating by 2030. Only 67 kilowatts of tidal stream capacity was deployed in 2022, the lowest addition since 2010. In the U.S., there are no large-scale tidal plants. A few months previously, the Department of Energy awarded $25 million to eight groups for the testing of wave technology at Oregon State University's PacWave South facility. Investment in wave technologies has been far higher than tidal, but together the marine power sector looks set for a boom. In October 2022, the DOE announced $35 million in funding from the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to advance tidal and river current energy systems. Compare these grants to the total $20 billion invested in wind in 2021, and there's a clear mismatch. But really, it's the more devices we can get in the water, the more renewable energy that we can bring online, the more that that's going to tackle those those net decarb goals. And so by 2050, I think there will be a pretty good impact that marine energy will be playing just based on the amount of capacity we'll have online by then. Wind and solar are somewhat random in their patterns. It's difficult to predict their energy output across different timescales. Tides, on the other hand, are well known, which reduces the need for backup energy sources. We know what we'll get and when. So why aren't we seeing investment in marine power on the same scale as wind and solar? It's a case of economics. Solar is cheap, and it works pretty much everywhere. In 2019, commercial-scale tidal energy cost $280 per megawatt hour, compared to $20 per megawatt hour for wind. On the plus side, tidal has a far higher power output. Reliability and efficiency versus costs. Those are the currents fighting against the tidal power anchors. On the interchange today, we look at the technology that could drive marine power into the same league as wind and solar. I'm joined by Tim Ramsey, 
Program Manager for Marine and Hydrokinetic at the U.S. Department of Energy. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm also delighted to be joined by Andrew Scott, CEO of Orbital. Orbital operates the O2 turbine, the largest commercial tidal power generator in the world. Andrew, great to have you here. Thanks, David. Nice to join you. So Andrew, a while ago, we had um, a wave power company on uh, talking about that technology. Can you walk us through a little bit about the differences between uh, wave and tidal power? Yeah, sure. Because I think there's often a lot of confusion because they're both the current and the sea. They may be the same thing, but they're very, very different. So waves are generated by wind blowing over the surface of the sea, creating ripple effects, and they kind of grow. And that, that's your propagating waves. Tides are entirely different, mainly... In fact, they're totally unique from a renewable energy source is that they're the driver of tides are the gravitational effects, mainly from the moon, as the moon orbits around the Earth, but also as a secondary order magnitude is um, as the Earth rotates around or orbits around the sun, the sun exacts a, a gravitational force. And we can't really detect that, but actually it pulls. It pulls at the surfaces of the oceans and the seas around the world as, as they go around, and, and it kind of causes a bulge. Everybody knows, will, will be familiar with that phenomenon if you've been down to the beach for any period of time and see that water comes up and it goes back down in a cycle that takes about 6 hours and 12 minutes between one and t'other. Um, so that's the effects of tide, but they actually then manifest in two different forms of energy, actually. One is is a potential energy. So if you can imagine the water comes up, obviously if you could capture it and contain it, and then when it when the tides drop back down, you could drain that out, and that's that's potential energy. That's not what uh, actually we're focused on doing. The other source of energy that tides manifest as is if you can imagine these bulges, massive bulges of water in the oceans as they kind of travel around. That water is actually going to move. You know, it's going to move from one part of the sea to another. And and when it moves, it's almost imperceptible, but it gets constrained around headlands and through and, uh, channels between islands and things. When that happens, it starts to become accelerated. And in some places, it becomes really accelerated. So it's like a giant deep river of water flowing, and we can see speeds, you know, in excess of three meters a second. And if you think that water is 800 times dense the air, those are phenomenal amounts of energy, right? That's kinetic energy. And that's what we call tidal streams. And that's the source of uh, renewable power that orbital marine power is focused on extracting. Yeah, the predictability is is definitely a key piece. And it, we, we've talked a lot uh, in the energy transition about, about wind and solar. And, you know, Marcus Lehman, the CEO at CalWave last year said that he thought that the last missing piece to be able to further the energy transition to 100% renewables would be wave power. Uh, would you guys both agree with that? And with wave, I'll, I'll probably more say marine uh, generated power, but would you would you guys both agree with that? I think it's part of the solution, but both wave and tides. Um, I wouldn't, I mean, obviously a net zero transition is going to require a lot more than just on the generation side. Um, it's going to need storage, you know, because we have got intermittency and variability. And it's going to need, you know, change how we use power as well. So, um, but from the generation side, it clearly, you know, I think the heavy lifting is is very clearly and obviously going to be done by wind and solar. But if we can bring technologies that can harness other sources of renewable energy, and renewable energies vary across the planet in terms of intensity, um, then there's lots of technologies that have a role to play, from geothermal through to 
uh, wave and tide. And I think, you know, that's very much the spirit of the approach that we we come at it is that we believe we can play a contribution. We're not a silver bullet here, but we have a role to play where there's tidal streams. We can offer a new source of renewable power. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And maybe just add a little bit more. Certainly marine energy is a huge untapped resource. Uh, so it's a huge potential to, um, whether it's that last 10% or just make a significant uh, impact uh, up to the first 90%, especially in different areas. Uh, there's, there is water resource, ocean resource uh, throughout throughout the globe across uh, many, many countries um, have that coastline, that shoreline. Uh, so there's there's a huge opportunity there. Yes. You know, there's a big discrepancy between the investment dollars flowing through to wind and solar uh, versus wave and tidal. I mean, obviously, wind and solar are a little bit further along uh, from the deployment. But Tim, what do you think needs to be done or can be done to help drive some more funding into this area? Certainly, yes. Uh, you see uh, wind and solar have definitely advanced a lot um, a lot further than marine energy has today. Uh, there's a number of reasons for that. Funding is one of them. Uh, but it's just really challenging to do work in marine energy. To do work out in the ocean is very challenging and it's very expensive. And that's one of the biggest reasons why marine energy hasn't as, hasn't as advanced as much as wind and solar has. Uh, whenever you're talking about deploying devices and testing devices, you have to go out in the ocean. Uh, you have to go out in open waters to really get a true prediction of their performance. And it's very costly to do that. Uh, you're also dealing with a lot of regulatory agencies. In many cases, almost all cases, it's public waters with a number of different permitting regulations and permitting processes that you have to go through that are very time intensive and, and costly. And they're there for a reason, for good reason. Uh, but it's a reality that the green energy industry faces. And so that's that's a challenge and something that, um, I guess, really to answer your question, that's one of the key things that I think that we need to um, be gathering data on and informing is on that permitting and regulatory process uh, so that we can provide the scientific data to inform that process. And then it's just about getting in the water more and more, getting devices in the water, more and more performance testing uh, that you'll really see the advancement of marine energy similar to what you saw with wind and wind and solar and wind in particular. When you saw uh, deployments in wind, you really saw uh, the uptick in, in capacity and deployment because of that learning. Andrew, what do you think can be done to help bring the overall costs of marine power down? Principally volume, scale. I think that's, you know, it's not just our sector. I think that's universally demonstrated across any new technology form is the barrier to entry is a cost one generally. Um, certainly if you're competing in a mature space, which electricity obviously is. So that's the principal barrier is that costs are high. And so we need support at an early stage to offset or level that playing field. And we shouldn't forget that pretty much every source of power generation that we have on the wires now at some point was a recipient of massive policy and economic investment uh, to start from a high cost point and get it to a low cost point. And we're, we're no different. And the, and the main, the main uh, parameter that drove cost reduction there really was volume. So learning by doing. And I mean, that's, that's an easy umbrella catch-all. Within that, there's actually quite a lot of innovation, investment in manufacturing, plant processes, and all these types of things. And that, yeah, absolutely, those are all things. Um, there are second-order effects, which are probably not usually necessarily talked about, which are more kind of commercial ones. You know, as you get 
more empirical data, more operating hours, and more confidence is that the risk profile reduces. And that what that means is that you pay less for your insurance, you pay less for your debt, and it actually has quite a marked effect on your overall cost to your product, which is your electricity. So these are phenomenons that um, we've seen countless times now, solar, wind, gas, and you name it. So they're just things that I guess we need to have afforded to us as well, that level of early market support to allow volume to build up and to demonstrate that cost reduction profile. Tim, on the policy side, the IRA obviously has had a, a solid impact on the energy transition. Uh, what have you seen from your side on the impact on companies such as Orbital and how it can help drive these initiatives forward and, and also help reduce the overall costs? I mean, we're still just now starting to see the the impacts of the IRA. Um, I know it was signed a little while ago, but, um, but the impacts and I guess the incentives uh, roll out into the future. But our anticipation, similar to what Andrew was just saying, it provides uh, that stopgap and it provides that backup on the capital, that, that really intensive capital uh, expenditure up front. Um, it helps to kind of piece together the overall economic picture uh, for these startups, for these entrepreneurs, that it's extremely costly, as Andrew said, to build that capital and needed to build devices and deploy devices. Andrew, how has your capital raising journey been? I mean, obviously, you know, you take something from the risk profile, like you said, the more you de-risk the business, uh, the more access to capital and cheaper capital you have. But starting from inception, how have you found that journey? Uh, well, just as an observation, it's not a quick or a short journey, you know, and so actually there's not necessarily a huge amount of investors that generally have the patience for that type of journey. So we've been developing our technology for over 15 years. You know, we're only really just now starting to get to that commercial deployment uh, and revenues. So it's a long time. And working in the marine environment with large structures and things like that and vessels and so forth, it's not a cheap journey either. We're talking the tens of millions of dollars here. So it's a very difficult pitch to make. You know, it's a logical one. You can see people can understand the growth of renewable energy markets and things like that. And the demand is growing. But it is a long play to bring new technologies in this type of space to market readiness. And what you really need, actually, generally, is consistency from market support. Coming back to this point that we understand that when we get to the start line, our costs are going to be higher, and that needs policy intervention in some shape or another to help level that playing field. But as it sits at the moment, Globally, you know, there's only a, a small handful of actual discrete market policies that are aimed at either wave or tidal. So if you're investing in this space, there's not actually necessarily a huge amount of assurance that you're going to have that offtake market at the end of it. So I think it is a changing picture, though. You know, things like um, the IRA and you know some of the endeavors that are working now in, in Europe and indeed, actually, in the UK, the UK government's changed its policy position where it has got a discrete market support for tidal stream. So these are starting to change uh, investors' appetite and investors' view. And for sure, there's not a shortage of investment wanting to be made in uh, credible, viable, uh, renewable, low-carbon propositions. But you do need to have that stack. Um, and as I said, to get to the start line in the marine space, 
and as I think it probably is in a lot of spaces, it is a long lead-in time. So it's a, it's an it's not an easy journey actually. I have to say, to go through that capital raising process, but um, you know sometimes you have to innovate as much on the uh, on the financing side as you do on the on the technical side. But you know maybe that's sometimes part of the test. Yeah, maybe just to add to that, we've seen also through state policies, uh, renewable standard portfolio policies, that there's a lot of incentive for renewables uh, through some of those state standards uh, and corporate standards as well. Yeah, there's definitely investment dollars out there uh, to be had. Um, it seems like everybody's just trying to pick the winner, right? I mean, everybody's trying to pick the winner with their investment dollars, but sometimes it's probably a little bit more patient than we would we would like. Yeah, and I think you know that there are some you know, very particular challenges with new technology coming to a marketplace. You have got very unconventional risk profiles compared to conventional mature technologies, you know, and it, it is principally uh, empirical evidence. You know, if you've got a big enough body of evidence that your generator can achieve X, then you will find an underwriter that's prepared to underwrite that risk. You know, but we have very small levels of empirical data here which means that it's generally very difficult to get insurance provisions around things like business interruption and so forth. And often, including in, in our own instance, you know, you are talking about startup companies here. So we generally don't have balance sheet strength to be able to put in place our own levels of warranty here to, to help debt, because ultimately it's, it's, it's debt that's coming in to finance this. And it's and that debt is on the confidence of will we see a return here? So there are some particular, very nuanced kind of challenges that occur around uh, introducing new forms of generation into a commercial marketplace. You know, Andrew, talking about the financing and and the investing in the in the debt. I mean, they're going to want to see you know ten, twenty, thirty year type projections and. Marine energy, we just don't have the data yet to inform what the survivability, durability, reliability is out on these devices 10, 20 years. So that's a big component as well, big key to what we need to do is gather that long duration data as well. And Tim, you bring up a good point. I mean, on the projections, right? I mean, it's so uncertain that I just remember back in my banking days and looking at projections, you got a stable industry. You can, you can kind of know with the parameters, uh, even if you risk it down, say five years and you use kind of a downside case. But here it's it's so unknown and there's so many variables that go into that that there's probably a, a real critical eye to those projections when looking at making the investment decision. Yep. And now is your with your role at the at the DOE, I mean, what type of criteria do you look at from an investment standpoint? Uh you guys obviously had a one with PacWave, which was obviously exciting. But when you're looking at these opportunities, what are some of the factors that you're focusing on? One of my favorite answers is it depends. <laughs> but uh, at the Department of Energy for our program, we uh, are investing in a number of different technologies trying to tackle all the challenges and hurdles, or at least the, the major challenges and hurdles that we see with green energy. So it's not just about building devices and testing devices. That's probably the biggest part of it, but you mentioned PacWave. So one of the activities that that we undertake in, in the Department of Energy and we try to fund is easy access to test facilities. So as I mentioned before, with marine energy, if you need to get devices out in the water, it's usually a very lengthy, costly permitting process. You're dealing with public water. So that's the beauty of PacWave and and the vision of PacWave is we've done all that pre-permitting for you. So it's kind of this test bed uh, for wave energy devices 
to make it so much easier and quicker and cheaper for developers to come in and test. So that's that's why we're funding PackWave. And when it comes online, I think that will be a big, big boon and opportunity for the wave energy industry. We're also funding what we call foundational R&D. So we fund at the kind of the basic level research and materials, specific materials to survive the marine energy environment. Uh, we do a lot of work in modeling and controls. Uh, we do a lot of work in resource characterization, just better understanding both the title and wave uh, resource out there. So depending on the type of activity we're funding, there's different criteria that we look at. Uh, but as far as um, like the devices themselves and building devices, putting them in the water and testing them, we want to see the justification and, and kind of the uh, the future outlook of what those devices um, overall LCOE could be and the energy they could provide and and comparing them to the energy that, or I guess the current price of energy for the area that they're looking to deploy in or ultimately commercialize in. So Andrew, specifically on Orbital, tell us a little bit about your generating platform. So the platforms, you know, how far out from the coastline do you typically go? What's kind of the max power that can be generated from these? Uh, Just a little bit more about the technology you guys are working with. Well, I mean, I guess the, the location is probably the easiest part of the equation because the tidal streams, because they need sort of the geography of headlands and islands and things to squeeze the water and accelerate it to cause the resource itself, is that the sites are generally always quite close to land. So where we've got our technology at the moment, it's probably no more than maybe a mile, half a mile offshore. So relatively close to shore. We're near shore waters kind of resource on the tidal stream side of things. Um, in terms of uh, how our technology works, we're a little bit, I guess, we like to think of ourselves as pioneers. Um, the the power generators themselves, because the resource is, is kinetic energy, it's, it is familiar to us as a challenge because it's the same as wind. So the rotational machinery in terms of blades and a, a sort of horizontal shaft, pitching blades, gearbox generator. That's the configuration of technology that we use. Um, And actually, we can borrow a lot of some of the philosophies of pitch control and things like that uh, over from the wind sector. And it's all quite conventional logic that we're using. I think where we've departed from possibly where a lot of people's logic would lead them in a tidal stream application where you try and build an underwater wind turbine, I think we recognize a lot of construction risks associated with that. Uh, these are very, very hostile environments. Working in deep water in them is almost impossible. Um, so we kind of tackled, we literally turned the solution upside down. We attached the rotors or the turbines to a floating platform. And uh, so we've got, a, a, it's difficult. You kind of have to actually look at it because it looks something like a space machine or a or a plane. And actually the turbine that we've built is about the size of a 747. So it has a hull, a fuselage that floats on the surface. And then it's got these two kind of wing or leg structures that are actually hinged and they can be driven by big hydraulics to uh, come up to the surface, horizontal, parallel with the surface of the water. And at the end of the wings, we've got the, the nacelles, the powertrains with the rotors. And then we can press a button and the hydraulic slows them down into the tidal streams. And the whole platform is moored with big anchors into tidal streams that holds it geostationary. And then we've got uh, an electrical dynamic cable that comes out and machine goes along the seabed and back to shore and plugs into the main thing. So 
it's been designed in recognition that there's real challenges and costs and risks associated with offshore construction. So the platform floats, we can tow it with low cost boats. And actually, you know, we want it to spend as much of its life generating power. You know, that's what it's built for. So that key to that is accessibility. You have to be able to get access to all your major components cost effectively and quickly. So we built that into the structure with these hinged legs. So at the press of a button, the speedboat, we can get a crew of people out in literally minutes onto the machine and quickly do service maintenance interventions. So it's a very novel. Uh, when when you see it, if you haven't seen it, when you see it, there's kind of a light bulb moment. I like to think that it's a logical solution for the challenge that we have. But actually, its engineering embodiment is actually quite sophisticated, but it is quite simplistic. And we are something of pioneers in this space. I uh, probably if you'd asked me if, if there were podcasts 15 years ago and you'd asked me this question, I would have been considered the crazy guy. That, that's, uh, that's never going to work. But we've consistently scaled the technology and connected it to the grid and showed that it works. So we now have the world's most powerful tidal turbine operating off the Orkney Islands in Scotland. As I said, it's by the size of a 747 and it can generate up to two megawatts. Actually, it can generate a chunk over two megawatts. Um, we're sort of limited in terms of power by two things, how fast the currents get and how deep the water column is. So in tidal stream sites, generally you're kind of limited to water depths that you won't often see more than 50 meters. So it's not like wind where the sky's the limit and you can build ever, ever bigger turbines. Uh, there will be a hard limit on tidal stream turbines, really. So how much bigger than two megawatts? Difficult to say. But one of the things that we're looking at at the moment is that rather than looking at every single tidal site and designing a tidal turbine for it, which is a very cost-heavy uh, way of saying about manufacturing, is converge on a common product that we think is going to be applicable across as many sites as possible because we understand that driving cost out is about doing the same thing time and time again rather than changing it every single version. So so we're kind of looking at around about somewhere between two and three megawatts being the what we think will be a common scale turbine. And you're right. When I looked at the pictures uh, of the platforms, you're right. I'm sure the technology behind it is obviously very complex, but it just made sense. I mean, I'm not sure if I was going as far as say simplistic, but just looking at the design and the picture, say, okay, you know, now that makes sense, and I could see how that how that would work. Yeah, I think so. You don't even. I don't think you even need to be a mariner particularly to kind of look at it and go, oh, right. I that's a clever way of solving the same kind of challenge. You know, is that some people quite like the familiarity of it of a wind turbine, well, let's just make an underwater wind turbine. And 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 you can make, that technology can work. I mean, there's like, but, you know, this is about trying to make it most cost effective. So we think that actually by having it as a floating platform, we solve or we de-risk some big cost points around construction, maintenance, servicing, and things like that. Do you, do you have any challenges as it relates to infrastructure? And I know he mentioned tie back into into the port with power cord essentially, but uh, any challenges on that front, whether it's storage, uh, the tie backs, anything on the infrastructure side? Uh, no, I mean we're 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 grid compatible, so we can just connect. We connect straight into the 
into the UK grid network on the on the top of Scotland. And that's not to say, I think, as we were talking about earlier, clearly there are challenges. And I mean, interestingly, where we do connect into the network uh, in the top of Scotland, um, in the Orkney Islands, that there's a whole community that are kind of pioneers in this space. Um, for over 10 years, they've been generating more electricity than the need from renewables. They've gone surplus. So as a community, they've been quite pioneering um, and forward-looking. So they've, they've got a lot of EVs on the island and things like that to try and increase the amount of demand, you know, shift from fossil fuels. And some of the interesting stuff that we've got is that um, uh, so we are connected in at this European Marine Energy Centre and at the substation, uh, there is an electrolyzer. So our turbine at times is putting power through an electrolyzer and creating clean green hydrogen. And indeed, there's low cell battery system there as well. So trying to kind of provide that picture of a future system, you know, a future energy system where, yes, we can, we will, there will be periods and requirements of renewable generation to go into alternative fuel sources or go into storage systems or, or a combination of both to be able to kind of match supply and demand. Any other types of uh, uses, you know, besides tying into the grid or, or otherwise for this type of power generation? A big interest of us at the Department of Energy is really anywhere near or in water where they need energy. And there's a lot of other end uses uh, where marine energy could meet some of these needs of other applications beyond the grid. So in the wave power industry, there's probably more of the wave energy technology developers looking at some of those end uses like ocean observation, um, powering UUVs, AUVs, uh, offshore aquaculture. Uh, desalination is a big one. And I would say that's both with wave and tidal. I know some tidal developers looking at marine power desalination to provide clean water. Uh, but again, uh, we really see this as a benefit uh, for the entire marine energy industry, providing other opportunities to get in the water uh, potentially cheaper, faster, again, learn by doing and provide revenue into the industry uh, through some of those end uses. So uh, we're very interested in looking at other applications beyond just the grid. Now, Tim, one of the things that we've uh, talked about on this podcast a number of times are concerns around supply chain. Particularly with the energy transition, there's a lot of technologies and products that that use the same materials. Now, whether it's uh, you know battery storage, so cobalt, nickel, lithium, you name it, just down to to plastics as well. In the analysis that you've looked at at the DOE, are there any challenges that you've uh, highlighted or noticed as it relates to the supply chain for the energy transition related materials? Uh, certainly, and we've seen the supply chain you know get worse through the pandemic as well. There's been a lot of supply chain issues that we're dealing with. Uh, copper has been a big one, especially with the cables that we're purchasing for the subsea cables. We see a lot of um, just challenges with the amount of copper that you need for the cables. And as you mentioned, there there is competing interests. Um, I would say the the wind sector and and the uh, the marine energy sector will be competing uh, for some of that supply chain. Vessels is another one that comes up quite a bit, especially with the amount of uh, offshore wind that they're planning to deploy here in the U.S. And a lot of those uh, cases will be competing with those vessels. And so we are looking into that. We're looking into vessels of opportunity and trying to leverage uh, anytime we're using vessels to go on the water, other industries are, that we can piggyback on those efforts. Andrew, what have you seen from orbital side? Yeah, I think certainly, you know, it's a different world right now where 
demand is outstripping supply. You know, and as soon as you get into that situation, then it becomes a spiral effect, isn't it? And and I think you know one of the the challenges that we have in the marine space, and and I said marine space is I guess marine it, offshore renewables, is the direct read across competing industries, oil and gas. You know, so certainly for offshore wind, a lot of the vessels are you know usable in either market. It's difficult. I think you know renewables uh, power generation has historically you know utility style thing been relatively low margin type of industry, and so it's now having to compete. And certainly in Europe, it's gone through a very vicious kind of cannibalization on margins. So supply chain was already hurting, whether it was from a capital or a warranty and exposure and risk sort of side of things before the pandemic coming out this side of it now, there's a wholesale readjustment needing to be made. And actually, there's a real challenge to compete for resources against oil and gas, which is stepping up. So it's a very awkward time at the moment. Certainly in Europe, we're seeing that. I mean, we we fall foul of a little bit of those phenomenons, but I know it's a weird way of looking at it in some ways because our costs are quite high. You know, we're less sensitive to some of the underlying commodity moves because, you know, we've not driven out the GVA on top of it type of thing. So we're, we're hopefully a little bit less sensitive. We're not working at anywhere near those volumes. We don't have nearly anywhere near the size of bespoke supply chains working. So from our perspective, I would say, yeah, we recognize there's a challenging world right now. But hopefully, I think in two, three years' time, I think we'll start to see things easing off um, in a lot of these spaces. Anything you think that can be done, whether it's you know from a policy standpoint or whatnot, to help alleviate some of these constraints? I mean, obviously, you can't go get a cobalt mine tomorrow and start producing, right? There's a long lead time, particularly on the battery raw material side. But is there anything that might help alleviate some of this this constraint? Oh, maybe that. Tim, I mean, I think it will be different possibly in the US. And I think, you know, the IRA in some ways is part of an answer to that. Because in a, in, a, in a competing place, it's what would you rather do? If it's a binary choice, it's one or t'other. Then you have to try and make what, the one that you want to be done more attractive. And I think, you know, the IRA is a massive intervention in that kind of way. And we're now seeing Europe having to try and consider uh, similar types of mechanisms where they can increase the attractiveness or the performance from a financial perspective of renewables. Because if they can't, there is a there is a definite risk here that we see something of a slowing, significant slowing of the deployment of renewables in Europe. So I think you know it comes down to the economic signals. If you want a certain type of behavior, then you have to incentivize it. Yeah. Above other behavior. <laughs> Yeah, and the IRA certainly helps with uh, tackling that cost hurdle, but the overall supply, um, like you said, that's going to come down to competing priorities. So, Andrew, any other areas that you guys are looking to expand to outside of the UK? Oh, ge- geographically? Yes. Yeah, I'm, Yeah, sure, of course. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're a business that wants to, we're kind of motivated by trying to see how much we can deploy of our technology around the world to help contribute to net zero tackles and things like that. So yeah, absolutely. There's, there is a global market. It is more um, geographically 
targeted. So tidal streams do not exist in the same way that wind and solar does. Um, so there are clearly regions, there's big regions, you know, big island archipelagos like Southeast Asia, Indonesia, Philippines and things. These are huge potential resources in the future. I think we see them as being slightly more challenging markets to break initially. So we're more focused at developed markets here in UK where we've got um, support and uh, in Europe there's large resources around France and things. And indeed in uh, East Coast Canada, the US itself is unfortunately one of the things that doesn't um, a huge around, around most of it is tidal stream, but there are pockets in both northeast and northwest, and actually there's some very large tidal stream resources um, further north into Alaska and things. So we we have got yeah we've absolutely got um, tangible things and plans in motions uh, in a number of different locations, and we'll hopefully be bringing good news around all those things in not too distant distant future. So Tim, as we look at our decarbonization goals for 2030 and 2050, what's your prediction on marine power playing a part in that and like to what extent? Probably not as, as much as say wind and solar will, um, but especially if you're looking out to 2050, it'll be tied to the, the devices deployed and the capacity brought online. Um, there's also some work we're looking at at marine um, CDRs of so marine carbon dioxide removal. Um, so that will play uh, a part as well. Um, but really, it's the more devices we can get in the water, the more renewable energy that we can bring online, the more that that's going to tackle those net decarb goals. And by 2050, I think there will be a pretty good, pretty good impact that marine energy will be playing just based on the amount of capacity we'll have online by then. Yeah, I think certainly when you're projecting further out to 2050, it's, I think it's it's easier to be a bit, bit more confident. The initial takeoff stage is a little bit more difficult to predict. Uh, necessarily how and where it's going to take place and which technologies are going to be involved sort of thing because we are and I think we should we do recognize we often kind of it's one of those things we talk about being 20 years behind wind but now we're probably a little bit more behind wind than that um, and we're only really in the foothills of commercialization um, but that you know that's not to detract from the opportunity and actually I think what things like wind and solar have demonstrated is that once you get the right confidence and the, the right combination of solution and investment and market, things can scale pretty quickly uh, and can happen quite quickly. So so I think um, certainly when you look out to further, further horizons like 2050, yeah, I, I mean, it will be a very, very different world there. And I'm certainly fairly confident that marine renewables, both wave and tidal, will be played a reasonable material contribution at that point. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And again, looking at both wind and solar and both those industries, there were cases where there was enough convergence, enough confidence in the technologies where they did hit inflection point and you saw that capacity really just skyrocketed, took off uh, exponentially. And I think we're really close to that tipping point in the marine energy industry as well. So as Andrew said, that's nothing to be scared of. That's, that's an opportunity that's, that's uh, just over the horizon. So, Tim, how can people find out more about what the DOE is doing uh, as it relates to marine power? Uh, certainly. I mean, the first place I would say is go to our website. Um, you can easily find us uh, online. 
Uh, we also have a number of national labs around the country, as well as marine renewable energy centers that are kind of spread and located throughout the country that are uh, um, house expertise in marine energy. And they're uh, located, like I said, uh, across the country. So I would reach out to uh, our national labs or our national marine renewable energy centers uh, to find out what we're doing. Um, we also try to get out there and talk to uh, talk to the public. We try to get out there uh, for conferences. Um, there's a number of conferences around the country as well as around the globe that we try to attend and, and hear from the industry and also present out to the industry and in, in the work that we're doing. Um, we hold online uh, what we call semi-annual stakeholder webinar meetings. Um, we do try to present out the work that we're doing because if if no one's benefiting from the projects that we're funding, or if only the recipients benefiting from the projects that we're funding, then it's really, uh, we're not having that impact that we seek to have the uh, the big impact across the industry and across the community. And Andrew, how can we learn more about Orbital and be able to track you guys' progress? Oh, that's quite easy. Uh, we've got quite good social media. You can, <laughs> if you, we've got a good website, orbitalmarine.com, and we've got a good, uh, we've got a good uh, um, account on LinkedIn or Twitter. I think we've got uh, uh, a Instagram one as well. Um, so yeah, everything you want to know and see, you'll find on through those channels. And our website, just in case you can't find it easily, it's energy.gov slash water. Well, Andrew, Tim, uh, really appreciate you guys coming on the show today. Learned a lot and was really interesting. So thanks. A pleasure. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, David. Nice, Tim. You too, Andrew. Thank you. I'm David Banmiller, and this is the Interchange Recharged. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions for topics we should look at on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter. We're at Interchange Show. If you've not listened to our sister podcast, The Energy Gang, we had an in-depth look at the renaissance of nuclear power back in January. Do go listen to that, as we'll be taking a similar look into the topic on an interchange show in the coming weeks. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. See you next time.